word of warning that this podcast contains swears and use of explicit sexual language. Therefore, it is not suitable for anyone under the age of 18 or anyone who thinks that knowing a love language means you've got an A-level in French. I'm ahead of the game. Welcome back to the Smut Drop. This is your weekly roundup to the more eccentric side of sex and relationships from metro.co.uk. I'm Miranda Kane, and on this week's show, I'll be looking at the nation's top love language, chatting to Dr. Holly Richmond about sex after trauma, and reading your stories of cold, hard revenge. If you like what you hear, then please rate, review, or at least subscribe. And I hope you're ready because I'm about to put the firm in words of affirmation. Hello, 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 dearest listener. Quick question, what is your love language? Oh, come on. We all know what a love language is by now, don't we? The idea of love languages was popularised by author Dr Gary Chapman and he wrote about how we all show and receive love in different ways. And he concentrated on five main love languages, which include words of affirmation. So reassuring words to your partner or partners saying, I love spending time with you. You make me laugh or your hair looks amazing or just I love you, just saying that a lot. There's acts of service, so that's when people do things for you. So they might make you a cup of tea or they might pour you a bath or cook you dinner. For them, actions speak louder than words. Then there's quality time, which is about giving your undivided attention to a loved one, focusing on on your partner without any distractions. There's receiving gifts, which isn't so much about materialism. It's more about a person getting getting you something meaningful and thoughtful to make sure you feel appreciated. And then there's physical touch. Oh, a hug or a cuddle, holding hands, kissing. It's all about being assured physically that you're safe, loved and accepted. Oh, they all sound pretty great. But which one is your favourite? Well, according to a new poll by YouGov of more than 3,700 adults, the nation's main love language is quality time. Mm. 30% of respondents said they would most like to spend quality time with their partner, including getting their full attention. (laughs) It does make me feel a lot better that 30% of us are attention seekers. Uh, Next was words of affirmation with 28%. Mm. Then physical touch, including kissing, cuddling and holding hands. 14% of people like that. And 12% of people wanted acts of service. Last on the list was receiving gifts, with just 2% of respondents saying they'd most like to receive a thoughtful gift from their partner. And yeah, there is differences between men and women. Uh, So more women said that their love language was quality time than men did. And receiving gifts was at the bottom for everyone, no matter what their age and gender. So if you want to see a full breakdown of this, and I really recommend it, head over to metro.co.uk and read the article, Quality Time or Physical Touch, This is the Nation's Top Love Language. 
But of course, don't do that until you've listened to this week's amazing guest, Dr. Holly Richmond. Ladies and gentlemen, gays and theys, this week's guest is one of North America's leading sex therapists and counsels a range of clients through relationships and sexuality issues with a sex-positive approach. She believes all sex is good sex as long as it's consensual and pleasurable, and frankly, so do we. It's the author of Reclaiming Pleasure, a sex-positive guide for moving past sexual trauma and living a passionate life, and I want to chat to her about just how we can do that. So please welcome Dr. Holly Richmond. Hello, Dr. Holly. Uh, hello. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this. So happy to be jumping in. Oh, no, we've been looking forward to it too. This is such a topic that I think we don't give enough airtime to at all. Does it feel that way? Does it feel like sexual pleasure after trauma feels a bit a bit shaming? It, it does, or just that it's missed because we're so focused on trauma. Trauma is such a, a word in our collective cultures, no matter where you live. We all know about trauma, but mm. we don't think about the what comes next. Mm. Um, so that's really where I feel like my work steps in. And I was trained at a rape crisis center. And again, it was that trauma-focused, trauma-focused. But then I remember sitting with my clients. I'm like, oh my gosh, but how are they going to have solid relationships and great sex? Because there's surviving after trauma, but there's really that piece of thriving and having a healthy relationship with our sexuality that I believe makes us feel like more authentic or complete humans. I totally agree. And I think it's such a shame because sometimes it can feel that if you've been through a trauma, especially a sexual one, and then you want to have great sex afterwards, that you're either seen as, well, the trauma wasn't traumatic enough or that you're it's still having trauma and you're trying to make up for it somehow. You know, you've, you've gone off on one and you're, you know, like doing something really that isn't a natural process. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And, and we don't see that middle ground. And I feel like with most survivors, they go one of two ways, which you just beautifully pointed out. They either go towards, I'm going to have a lot of sex to try to make that trauma not mean anything. I'm trying, gonna try to minimize that, be like, ah, it wasn't a big deal, I'm just gonna carry on. Or the person completely shuts down and doesn't have sex for years and years and years. There's gotta be this space in, a, in the middle where we can kind of titrate how they can reclaim their sexuality, how they can be in relationships again in a way that feels safe, but still pleasurable. Mm, I love that, definitely. So let's go back to the beginning. How were you defining trauma, sexual trauma? Oh my gosh. So um, I'm a big proponent of definitions. No one works with me until they really understand what happened to them. And that language that I just said is really important. What happened to them? Not what they did, not what they didn't do, not if they said yes, not if they said no, but really looking at the definitions for sexual abuse, date rape, rape, gang rape, sexual harassment. So people can really say, oh, that's me. I fit there. Um, and it takes the blame off them. And again, it externalizes that process. More generally, trauma, there's some really great definitions that I love, but it's essentially this idea of too much too soon. Or we did, obviously, something happened to us that was against our consent. We didn't have a chance to say no. Mm. I mean, could, do, do you find that people can identify their, their trauma? Or is there, are there ways that you, that you can give them to help them to identify what they've been through? 
Yes. So I just have worksheets or they could use my book. And I mean, there is a whole chapter that's just definitions. It is not the most riveting reading, but it's really important. And it's a place we have to start because if we don't understand what happened to us, it's really hard to conceptualize where we're going. Are there telltale signs? Are there clues that people can give out? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So we're looking at um, hyper aroused nervous system, hypo aroused nervous system. So again, you're looking at uh, depression or anxiety. There could be sexual compulsivity in there. So they could be masturbating a lot, or they could be having hookups that they feel really poorly about afterwards. Eating disorders, disordered eating, huge telltale sign of survivors of sexual trauma. Um, anything where people are really not feeling in integrity, and I don't use that word integrity in an ethical sense or a moral sense, but it's just where their mind and body aren't on the same page. Is there a way to find out whether you're doing something because you're just in a, a new situation and you're exploring things? Or is there a way that you're like, oh, my God, I've, I've got some sexual trauma here? Yeah. Yeah. So the first I would say, are you dissociating during the experience? So when you're with a new person, or even if you're masturbating on your own, are you present? Are you able to take in the pleasure and connection to yourself or with the other person? Or do you completely leave your body? And it's almost like you're an observer looking mm. down on yourself. You can't experience the touch. You can't experience connection or authenticity to yourself. So that would be one way and the other thing is afterwards, are you feeling shame? And mm. that shame is usually identified as racing heart, our cheeks flush. We want to isolate. We have these um, ruminative thoughts of I'm bad. I'm so disgusting. I'm gross. How could anyone love me? That's a track that would go around and round. So where do we start? So if someone's identified that they've suffered sexual trauma and they want to start getting help where is a good place for people to start yeah so um the the protocol that i outlined and and this again was with the rape crisis center and, and my clients there the first factor that I identified is control so there's maintaining control and there's relinquishing control most survivors are of sexual trauma are going to be pretty um, astute at maintaining control they're going to be super aware of who they're with where they are, what's happening around them, almost in a hypervigilant way. So the work there is helping them relinquish control so they can step into just a little bit of risk, just a little bit more connection with other people um, and still feel safe. So more easily said, maybe most survivors have their nose, like, no, I'm not going to do that. No, I don't want to do that. No, I don't feel safe. So the work is helping them find their yes yes, that is sexual connection that I like. Yes, that is a way that I can make myself feel good. So we step into the yeses. And is there anything that people can do for themselves in that way? Like, is there anything that they can just start to ease? Because I think for a lot of people, it might be even just, just going on to say your worksheets or your website might be triggering in a way. So is there anything they can do for themselves just to help them to say yes to counselling? Yes. Yeah. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because when we talk about pleasure, we're going to bring up this point again. I don't lead with sexual homework. 
right? So I'm not going to be, we're not going to be saying our yeses and our noes to things that are sexual in nature when we first get started. They're going to be more like setting boundaries with friends, setting boundaries with family, really thinking about, do I want to say yes to going to this? Do I want to say yes to being on this committee? Um, am I a people pleaser? Or is my no right there all the time and I'm finding myself really isolated? Do I need to step into that yes a little bit? But again, we're going to do it with things where there's a lower bar, lower risk that are not sexual in nature. Mm, Okay, so let's get on to the sexual pleasure. How can we start? Because I say we, because I think it's, it's happened to so many people. It happens, especially women. So how can we start reclaiming our sexual pleasure? So after control, so we're really feeling like we've got a handle on our environment and how our bodies are responding, we step into pleasure. And this is really the fun and exciting piece of the puzzle. Not for everyone, it can still be hard. But the two pieces I look at here are desire and arousal. So I define desire as a psychological process of wanting. It's what do I find sexy? And arousal is the physiological process of wanting. So that's quite literally what turns me on. So I feel that in my body. Most people, and especially most survivors, have never even considered what they like sexually, what they like relationally, what really resonates for them. We just, I mean, so many of us are just brought up, like, if your partner's happy, that means sex is good. If your partner's done, especially for heteronormative relationships, if the guy has an orgasm, the sex is over. Don't ask for what you want because no one's interested and it's not important. So really helping people figure out where their trauma is, but where their sexual health is too. Because we can't, again, we can't just heal trauma in the, in the isolation of the trauma itself. We have to move towards sexual health. And what about a partner? Is there anything that a partner can be doing at the same time? Yes. So the partner can be patient. The partner can be curious. The partner cannot ask for details if, if the other person hasn't given it. This is really, really important to me. You don't need to share the details of your sexual trauma to heal from sexual trauma. No therapist, counselor, friend, partner should ask you what happened. Because when a survivor here, well, well, what happened? How bad was it? There's an automatic judgment of when the survivor speaks, she's going to be like, oh, maybe this wasn't bad enough. Or they're going to think I'm overreacting. Or they're going to say, what's the big deal? Um, Some of the most profound work I've done, I never knew the details of what happened to that person. I just could see their symptoms and we worked through them. Mm, I think that's such great advice because it's so, I don't know, because you're not given a handbook, are you? If you have been through it or your partner has been through it or just a friend, then you're not told and you, you want to help, but it's so hard to figure out what you can be doing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the other thing I want to say, oftentimes, it's important for a a chunk of time. So let's say several months for the survivor to initiate um, any kind of intimate or sexual contact. So instead of the partner constantly asking for sex or constantly asking for a physical connection, just for a while, let the survivor move towards their partner. Mm. So, okay, let's look at the timeline. Like, are there exercises or any steps that people can be taking? And and if so, what is the timeline of that? Like, And I know that everyone's, I know it's going to be very mm-hmm. different for, for everyone. But is there a certain moment where you can start saying, okay, we need to start looking at this or or like different, do you know what I mean? Just little things that you can start doing for yourself or for someone else. 
Yeah. Um, most of the time people are going to know, and yes, you're right. It's individual. Um, but for me in my practice, I see survivors an average of 10 years after their sexual trauma happened. Right. Mm. And that often blows people's mind. Most people, again, they want to minimize what happened. So they move through the next 10 years and then they get disordered eating, eating disorders, substance use, anxiety, depression, you name it, all of the things going on. And they're finally like, oh, wow, I think maybe my sexual trauma has something to do with the way I am functioning in the world or I'm not functioning in the world. Um, Whereas for other people who would come in right after their sexual trauma happened, that process is going to be a little different because we have to help them to feel safe in the world again. Like Mm -hmm. they're probably going to be a little bit more in acute PTSD symptoms. So you've really got to work on safety and then feeling grounded and like they have control of their environment before you're going to move into the sexual realm. What's a good way to help someone feel safe and grounded? Grounding exercises. So starting with a little bit of a mindfulness practice every day, um, exercises that are going to engage the body. So some of the really common ones that I'm sure you've heard of. So the five, four, three, two, one, say five things in your environment that you can see, Mm. four things that you can touch, three things that you can hear, uh, two things that you can smell, one thing that you can taste. Mm. Um, Eat a lemon candy, dig your nails into the palm of your hands, um, chew on an ice cube, anything that's just like, oh, my body knows it is here right now. It is not two years ago. It is not two days ago. It is not 20 years ago. Mm. So we bring the body from that was then to this is now. These all sound like great things to do anyway for anyone who, even if you haven't been through a, a sexual trauma, just great things for anyone if you get anxiety. I mean, I know the five, four, three, two, one is a, is an anxiety exercise as well. But also, just like you were saying about knowing what you want with arousal and pleasure, knowing what you want <laughs> rather than right. letting your partner's orgasm dictate it. It's all it all works out. You don't need to have gone through a trauma to have, to have these things as really good things to have in your back pocket anyway. Um, yes. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> what about when you're, if you're feeling like you can have pleasure again, where can we start practically? Where does that begin? Yes. So I call this a self-pleasure protocol, which is a nice, easy way to say masturbation. Mm. But when we think of masturbation, it's typically goal oriented with the goal of orgasm. A self-pleasure protocol, there's really no goal other than exploration and just seeing what kind of touch feels good. So I would start my clients on non-genital touch, just laying in bed for 10 to 15 minutes once or twice a week and doing some gentle caressing, stroking from the top of their head to the tip of their toes. What areas of your body feel safe and open to pleasure? Um, And then we would progress every week. Okay, let's take your top off. Then the next week, let's take your bottom off, but we're still not doing genital touch. We're just laying in bed naked, caressing ourselves. And then we might move to touching the vulva and the breast, but there's no penetration. And then we might do digital penetration. And then we might bring in a toy. And then after that, then we bring in a partner. Mm. So it starts with you. You don't have to feel like you need to rush into any anyone else's sexual experience. It's all It's all your own 
movements. Yes, yes. And we might do some vulva gazing there. I mean, it's amazing how many female body people have never even looked at their own parts. Um, so there might be some psychoeducation around anatomy. Um, I also have them try different places if they have access to you know, a bathtub or a shower, or if they live alone or have some privacy, the couch versus just only in their bed in one position at the same time of day. So we want to create erotic flexibility so that they know almost no matter what situation I'm in, if I am choosing it, I have the opportunity to experience pleasure here. Mm, is that something that's part of the end goal? Like, I don't want to, I mean, is there a, a definition to what sexual pleasure is for you? Not really, except where you started with the the sex positivity, consent and pleasure. So all sex is good sex, as long as it's consensual and pleasurable. Mm. You might decide, hey, I never want to have penetrative sex again, um, because I don't like it. And this kind of sex, oral is great for me, digital is great for me, toys are great for me. Whereas another person might say, I really don't like oral, I've figured that out. I'm super into penetration. We all get to decide. It's all sex. Sex is not penis and vagina. And I think the world is finally catching on to that. I hope <laughs> they are. It can great if you love it, love it, all good. But if you don't, you don't. And that's fantastic too. Mm. What about the intimacy? So we've got sexual pleasure, but what if people aren't feeling that emotional connection? Yeah, yeah. So you just stepped right into the third piece of the healing protocol. So remember, we've got connection reclaiming. I mean, we've got connection, um, maintaining and relinquishing. The second piece is pleasure, which is discovering that sexual template of desire and arousal and our self-pleasure protocol. The third step is connection. And this one is the, is really the hardest. You know, when we're working on connection, people are like, great, I want to feel safe. I want to feel boundaried. Pleasure is kind of the fun spot where they get to really sink into what they want and their sexual health. And then connection, they're like, oh shit, I have to go do this in the world. Mm. Um, because to some extent, we're all wired for connection. Now, digisexuals are going to feel connected online through technology, but many of us are still like that in-person element to sexuality and intimacy is a huge part. For a lot of survivors, this is so scary. So it's trusting themselves and that they'll have their nose, you know, mm. so that they cannot go into over people pleasing, over functioning and say, hey, no, I'm not into that right now, or I'm not into that at all. And that they can have their yeses of like, yes, I'd like to try that. Wow, I've never done that before. I'm um, a little anxious about it. But if you're here with me, I can do that. Really, really learning to trust again. I love all this because this all sounds very practical, very uh, like things people can start doing from home and they can seek a professional if they want to. But there are things that they can look at within themselves. So I, I want to ask you, how did you start developing this? What brought you into this field and, and made you want to carry on with this? Oh, my gosh. Um, I'm going to keep this story as short as possible. So I was a journalist for 15 years before I went back into psychology. Mm. Um, and for two years, I started cre teaching creative writing at a girls detention facility in California. Um, and these these girls were writing story after story of sexual trauma in a way that obviously I could tell they, they were just like writing about it. Like they would go to the grocery store or they would go like there was just, they weren't able to connect the emotions to what had happened to them. Mm. And at that point I had no skills for treating this whatsoever other than to say, that's not okay. How can I can help? 
So I went to graduate school and um, got my master's in clinical psychology. And that's where I did my hours at a rape crisis center and just noticed so profoundly this gap, like I said at the beginning, between treating trauma and treating sexuality. It just wasn't happening. So I wrote my dissertation on the recovery of sexual health after sexual assault. Mm. And that dissertation turned into my book, Reclaiming Pleasure. Wow, what a story. That's such a journey of seeing what people, what women were going through and then saying, I, I'm going to do something. Yes. And I know you guys on this podcast are so amazing, but it's just uh, how little people are willing to talk about sex. Mm. So then I took, you know, the therapy degree and I was like, okay, I need a sex therapy certification because I certainly, I'm in my early fifties. I wasn't taught to um, talk about sex. I wanted to make sure I was doing it right and in a sex positive way. Um, Mm. So now I'm kind of on a mission to train therapists, especially at crisis centers to be more sex positive and to talk about sexuality. Because if we don't bring it up, and even if you're just a friend or a family member, most survivors are not going to feel comfortable bringing it up because they're afraid of making you uncomfortable, Mm. right? So if you can bring it up and say, I see you and even what's happening with your sex life, can I help? Like that's such an essential first step. That's such a, because I was literally about to ask, how can we as a friend say to our pals, like, what about sex now, is that is that a good conversation? What is a good, how is a good way to start it with that that doesn't involve half a bottle of Pinot Grigio? Right, right. Oh, I don't know if it's going to involve half the bottle or not. Have the conversation whether it does or whether it doesn't. To me, the ultimate act of reclamation is having great sex. It's a mm. big F you to the system when survivors can reclaim their sexuality, have great sex again and say, hey, you're not keeping me down and keeping me in a box and over here. So yeah, I would just want to ask about it. Maybe you say something like, oh my gosh, I just bought this new toy. It's fantastic. Have you ever tried anything like this? So you could talk about a toy or you could talk about a partnership, ask them how the relationship is and then kind of morph into the sexuality piece of it. Is there a good time to bring that up? Like, I know everyone's timeline is very individual, but maybe are there signs that you as a friend can see and start thinking, okay, this might be a good time to to start talking about pleasure? Sure. Man, that's complicated because I first wanted to say not when they're in that acute PTSD phase. So if they're really anxious or really depressed, you're going to want to treat those big symptoms first. I mean, not you as a friend, but say, hey, can I connect you with a counselor or can I go with you here to this group? Mm. Um, And you wouldn't want to let people sit in that space too long where they're feeling really isolated or that they're having trouble with alcohol or drugs or eating. You would want to catch it and say something too. Most people appreciate it. And, you know, I can already tell with you, you would ask in a kind and compassionate way. You're not going to say, hey, man, you seem really effed up. What's going on? You seem absolutely out of it. Do you want a sex toy? Come on. (laughs) Right. Not, Not that way. Have you, are you worried about receiving any backlash? Because we know that this is super important. Anyone with two brain cells to rub together would know that reclaiming your sex life and reclaiming your pleasure within sex life is really important and is a big fuck you to the system. But are you worried that there will be those people who will point it out and and be like, oh, well, you can't be that fucked up then? 
Right. Right. So there's that of like, oh gosh, it couldn't have been that bad. You should have heard what happened to my sister or my brother or mm. the girl down the street. So there's this constant comparison. Uh, Everyone reacts to things differently. What's traumatic for you? I might be like, ah, oh, that wasn't a big deal to me, but I'm certainly not going to judge you. And you could say the same thing back to me. The other trouble is, you know, since 2017 in the Me Too movement, the system itself which is really built around people in power, um, mm. most of the time men, they are going to do whatever they can to say she consented, that didn't happen. So my two words here are belief survivors. Mm. I mean, I just believe survivors. I don't think I've ever met anyone who's like, yeah, I'm just going to dive into this awful process of healing myself or perhaps reporting because I feel like it. It is so laborious. It is so tedious. When most survivors do report, nothing happens. You know, most, mm. most perpetrators aren't um, prosecuted. So please believe survivors. Um, no one is going to step into the space because it's just on a whim and they feel like it. Mm. So what can we do as people who want to be good allies to people who suffered sexual trauma or if we've done it in the, you know, if we've been through it in the past, what can we start doing to help open up those conversations? Yeah, I mean, we talked about it a little bit before. It's stay curious, stay out of the details, ask how you can support ask if being um, with you feels good, what kind of activities would be good. Maybe they want to be in the water because that's grounding for them. Maybe they want to go for walks in the park. Maybe they want to sing at the top of their lungs in the car with you. So you're really asking in the broad picture of things, what can I do to support you? Brandon, if you're the ally, they're building that trust and safety with you. And then you're the bridge to more intimate or sexual relationships for them. Like, okay, I can trust this person. She's going to listen when I say no. She's going to help me when I say yes. And then I'm going to try it next with, with a potential partner. God, these are all such important things to remember. And, and honestly, that's so, I find it so fascinating and also so helpful. I love a practical guide. I love knowing what I can do in a practical way to help someone or what I can do to help myself. So I find this really, really interesting. So where can people find the book or other resources if they want to find out more? Sure. So the book is on Amazon and it's Reclaiming Pleasure, a sex positive guide for moving past sexual trauma and living a passionate life. You can come to my website, drhollyrichmond.com. Um, and also, I'm, a, I'm the Associate Director for Modern Sex Therapy Institutes, which has a ton of classes and resources um, for therapists and individuals about learning about sexuality. And there's a whole sexual trauma section and certification. Do the certification. Just take the courses. But if you're interested in supporting people in this way, if you're a survivor, going there could be incredibly helpful as well. That's amazing. Thank you so much for all of your help. And uh, yeah, definitely sounds like something that I want to get on my bookshelf. Brilliant. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Holly Richmond. Thank you. Thanks again. I have once again delved into the fun bags. This week, I put a shout out on my Instagram stories for your tales of revenge. <sighs> Jess, she dropped into my DMs to say, as a nurse, I got to be the one to tell my cheating ex that he had gonorrhea. <laughs> oh, that 
that is a very satisfying diagnosis, as long as it was only him. Um, Steph emailed to say, I had to move out of the flat I shared with my ex, even though he dumped me. Oh, I can tell the venom from here. But I'm still on the Neighbourhood Facebook group and it turns out he knows nothing about living on his own and uses the group to ask every question rather than just using Google. Oh, oh, we all know those. T- oh, my God. This is one of the reasons why I cannot stand going on Facebook. You've got someone's aunt saying, does anyone know what time the Astors is shut in Chester? Frankly, anything you do to him from here on in, I totally concur with. Anyway... <laughs> Sorry. Uh, She says, obviously, I made other profiles and sent him to shops when they were shut, got him parking fines. And I'm particularly proud of the time I told him that if he missed bin day, he could just leave his rubbish outside the nearest police station. And it didn't take them long to track him down (laughs) because he posted about getting a £250 fine the next day. Oh, Steph. Oh. (laughs) Now, obviously, I can't condone cold hard revenge, um, but I will cheer you on from the sidelines. Uh, Anyway, next week, I'll be seeing if love really is written in the stars and having a chat to astrologist Hagen Fox. So I want to hear your strange stories of destiny. Has your life changed with a chance encounter or a twist of fate? Has something weird led to some spooky dick then just email me at smutdrop at metro.co.uk or you can find me on instagram as miri kane that's m-i-r-i-k-a-n-e i've been miranda kane smut drop was produced by pineapple audio production for metro.co.uk if you are enjoying this weekly load of smut to the face please leave me a nice review in the meantime i'll be back to prick up your ears next week and remember don't do anything i wouldn't do but if you do then name it after me 